1: Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ, and please check out my website joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, May 19th, 2023. In this week's episode, jury deliberations begin in the retrial of actor Danny Masterson as the actor again faces three counts of forcible rape from three different accusers. Also, we have a surprising update, or not, depending on who you ask, in the University of Idaho slayings as suspect Brian Koberger has been indicted by a grand jury on four counts of murder weeks ahead of a scheduled preliminary hearing. But first, we go to the conviction of Lori Vallow, who has been found guilty on all counts in a case that captivated the nation. Today, we are joined by Bob Mata, a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, and a host of the true crime podcast, Defense Diaries. Bob, welcome.
2: Thanks, Josh. I'm super excited to be here with you, man.
1: We are excited to have you. Uh, We know that you follow these cases closely with your own podcasts. I know you do a lot of commentary on TV and with your experience. And so I wanna hear a little bit about that. Before we jump in, tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice.
2: Uh, So yeah, I'm a long time, 20 plus year criminal defense trial attorney. Uh, I actually have a practice with my wife. Uh, (laughs) It took some getting used to, but we we've done it and done it pretty well for a long time. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, I have been telling my wife, I'm like, look, I'm getting a little bit burnt. Uh, Because, as you know, Josh, it's a tough business. Um, It really takes a lot out of you in terms of the weight that we carry in terms of what we do for a living. Um, I I said, look, I want to you know, I've been tinkering with this idea of doing a podcast. And um, she was kind enough to give me the the wide berth to let me do it and kind of carry carry the firm while I told her I was going to go all in on this thing. So she's she's the real hero of the story in my world. Um, because she gave me the opportunity to do it and you know I took the bull by the horns and I, I had great source material because back in like 78 through 80 my father had represented serial killer John Wayne Gacy for my Oh birthday wow. he'd given me all of his taped interviews with Gacy which I held on to for 30 years didn't do anything with them and Gacy had waived privilege all the way back then that was how he expected Sam Amaranti and my father to get paid for the for the job and you know, I just sat on them, sat on them, sat on them. And then at some point I reached out to a documentarian, Joe Berlinger, and I'm like, Hey, you know, uh, your Bundy tapes, things just dropped. I just wanted to let you know, I had some source material you might be interested in that went on negotiation wise for nine months. I could get something done. And that like really pushed me over the edge to do the pod. And I'm so glad that I did because it's just, a, it's, it's a, like in, in my estimation obviously i'm biased but it like we think we put together a masterpiece and it's really not about gacy it's really about the victims it's about the investigation it's about the arrest and the trial so we tried not to focus on everything that's been been said and done about well, that guy for all these yeah. years we want to focus on the things that haven't been like the victims um, wow and just the arrest and you know and then we we play the the taped interviews with my father and that was. And I know we're going to touch upon this a little bit later in terms of there you know, not being a insanity defense available in Idaho. Well, there was and there is in Illinois, and that was an insanity defense case. So hearing my father spar with Gacy pre-trial, trying to prepare him for that is fascinating stuff. So wow. that was really what got me into it, and, and it's kind of taken off from there.
1: That's I did not know that. That is fascinating. Uh, I'm definitely going to check that out because you do not – you may get access to certain things when putting on a documentary, but you to get the the tapes between the defendant and his lawyer. I can only imagine the kind of stuff that you find out in that. Wow, and fascinating!
2: Yeah, yeah you, you you never hear that side of it. You know, it's, no, that, that's the thing. Like for that, you know, because typically there's privilege. You know, and even though he wasn't my client, I wasn't going to jam my father up, by, right. uh, you know, putting these tapes out there had Gacy not waved. But, you know, uh, yeah, they're they're really interesting, man. I, I think. Wow.
1: Well, we will we will definitely uh, check those out. Um, all right. Well, let's jump into these cases. I want to hear what your, your thoughts on these things. Let's go to Boise, Idaho, where a jury has convicted Lori Vallow on all counts after five weeks of testimony. The jury of seven men and five women reached their verdict after just six hours of deliberation. Vallo stood accused of the murders of her youngest son, JJ Vallo, age seven, daughter, Tylee Ryan, 16, along with conspiracy to commit murder and the death of Chad Daybell's late wife, Tammy. Daybell was Vallo's fifth husband. The children were last seen alive in September of 2019 before they were ultimately found dead in June of 2020, on the Idaho property of Daybell. The case made national headlines, even becoming the subject of a Netflix documentary, due in part to the extremist religious beliefs shared by Vallow and Daybell. The state uh, presented, pardon me, nearly 60 witnesses, including members of Vallow's own family to testify against her. Meanwhile, the defense did not present any witnesses or evidence on her behalf, insisting instead that the state had not met their burden to convict their client. In closing arguments, prosecutors alleged that Vallow's supposed religious beliefs were merely a rationalization for her actions, citing her motives as money, sex, and power. Vallow was convicted on two counts of murder, three counts of conspiracy related to the deaths of her children and Tammy D'Aboa, as well as grand theft for allegedly collecting payments on the children's behalf after their deaths. Mallow now faces a life sentence for these convictions. Her sentencing hearing is scheduled to be held in three months. Bob, I know you followed this closely. Um, I know you were giving some commentary on this. Were you at all surprised by this verdict?
2: No, not at all. Um, yeah. and Joshua, man, I rabbit hole that case harder than anything that I, like from a lawyer's perspective, I just thought it was the most fascinating case for a lot of different reasons. You know, it, ultimately the way that I felt, and we ended up, we have a side pod under the defense diaries thing that we call the docket. And I actually brought my wife in and we, we did 12 episodes. So we were taking like the, the audio from each witness, That we felt was pertinent and germane, that weren't like foundational witnesses, and we would, and we were analyzing it from the defense side of it, and it was a massive project. But it was like so, like I was so enthralled with the case. Obviously, it's a horrific case. Obviously, it's devastating the fact that we had these three wonderful people that were killed, and and you know we can't forget about Charles either. I mean, he obviously wasn't charged in that case because it was an Arizona case, but. I wasn't, you know. Ultimately, and I said early in our pod that I had no doubt they were going to convict her based on two things, and I didn't think they would ever be able to prove factually with evidence the the first degree murder charges. I just didn't think they'd be able to get there. And and what what shocked me was a little bit was the speed of the verdict. I had yeah. always said that. Alice and I am not gonna get in the weeds in it here, but we get into the weeds it pretty heavy in, in our little docket episode. In terms of the instruction for and, and I know that, that that our listeners and our viewers get bored by jury instructions, but you and I both know how absolutely critical those are. Those are the, the guide map for the jury when they go back in that deliberation room. It's their instruction booklet on what sure. they're supposed to do and how they come to their, you know, their decision. And that that, that jury instruction pertaining to the conspiracy and the way that they basically joined the murder charge with the grand theft charge in one instruction was like we spent in, like a half an hour trying to get like our listeners to understand the difficulty. So like going into the deliberations, I thought it would take a while. And I thought that there would be a couple of questions. I always thought they were coming back with guilty on all counts, but not because of the evidence itself. I thought that the totality of the story and the fact that the way that the kids were were discovered and the and the desecration to the bodies, combined with the fact that Lori just didn't appear to care at all, that that was enough for the jury to say, you know what, once we hear it all, like there's there's no other option here other than to find her guilty for everything, because yeah. she is. So no, yeah. like, that was a long explanation for a short answer, which is no, I would not surprise
1: you. <laughs> no, but I agree with you. I I. I was not surprised again with the outcome, but it did seem to come back very quickly. And I'm not trying to say that the jurors didn't do their work, but when you've got five weeks of testimony, and nearly 60 witnesses, you expect them to, to kind of be back there for a while to just kind of review some of this stuff amongst themselves. But I, I think what it shows is that they were just, like you said, so disgusted by what had taken place. And over the course of that five weeks, just... Slowly began to become convinced that by the time they get back to the jury room, it sounds like it was just a matter of picking a four person and filling out some paperwork because that is a very quick verdict. You know, we saw a quick verdict in Alec Murdoch in his case, and I think people thought that's how things work, and no, it's not. In no. uh, a lot of these cases, even when it, the evidence appears to be very compelling, pe- they just take a while because they know the, the gravity of all of it. One thing, though, that did surprise me uh, was the Tammy Daybell conviction, because I just felt that of of the evidence that connected her to that murder, even under a conspiracy charge, it just seemed a little more tenuous and maybe a, a bridge too far, obviously not for the jurors. What were your thoughts on that?
2: I agree completely. I thought if there was there was one potential charge that they could have they could have gone not guilty on. It was that one, just because, I mean, it, that was the one we knew that she was definitively out of state. She was in Hawaii, you know, when that thing went down. So, you know, in terms of them being able to make that connection and, and I just, and I've, I've watched a couple of interviews with a couple of the jurors and I think ultimately, because I was having a hard time, as compelling as the state's case was, and they really got into the weeds with the LDS. And how the offshoot of the the cult had like really kind of taken on a life of its own, but like when they they ultimately, like they never really got the evidence that that showed that she was in agreement. I mean, it was a lot of circumstantial yeah. stuff, you know. So like, but that, that's why I was saying I knew they were going to land on on guilty on all counts because just of the the totality of the circumstances. But I agree completely as far as the Tammy murder went, you know, they just didn't really have the evidence. They never really provided it. But again, it was just, I, I think that the jury ultimately landed on the fact that she was evil. <laughs> you yeah, know, like that. Yeah. They, they, they convicted her because she, they felt she was evil. And, you know, I, I think that that's what, what led them. And, and look, I, I've been doing this a long time. And, and sometimes, you know, even when the state can't necessarily meet the burden on its face, like when you look at it, piece by piece and element by element, you know, you'll know you get a, a compelling narrative by a, by a state and then you get an incredibly hateable defendant, they're going down. And I think yeah. that's exactly what happened. Here.
1: Yeah, it's hard for 12 people to give a pass to someone who within weeks of their children disappearing that we now know they're dead, she's sunbathing in Hawaii with her new husband. That, that kind of behavior, married. That kind of behavior is so just shocking and appalling that jurors are not going to have a hard time kind of connecting dots, even where they they might be a little tenuous. And again, I'm not trying to say they didn't follow the law. I think the evidence was there. It's just I think seeing that quick uh, conviction, that had to have played a role, the emotions of all of it. I want to turn to it for a second to talk about the the defense here, and I want to know your opinion on how they did. If you think they could have done more, are they? Did they do the best with what they had? And then, if you can, um, you know, I know I'm giving you a lot here, but if you can work in the idea of this whole insanity defense not being available in Idaho, and you know, what were they kind of hamstrung to some extent because of that?
2: Well, so I love that question, and I love all the tangents of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for asking, man. You know, so Alice and I, obviously being my wife and my partner, both being defense attorneys, we were super critical of what was going on with the defense. Now, granted, these guys were not originally uh, the trial lawyers that were handling the case. They came into it later. Um, It was a speedy trial demand. And as you know, that puts people off in terms of both sides trying to prepare for a trial, especially with this many moving parts, you know, And, and ultimately, and I'm sure your viewers understand the fact that, there, there typically are no surprises in terms of what's coming in in terms of evidence. You know, the defense knew, they knew that they had the DNA that they had the hair that was found on the, on the duct tape that was found on JJ's body. Like that was not a surprise. It was a surprise to me, you know, in terms of when they, I'm like, Oh my God, they actually do have some DNA evidence, which I thought was powerful, you know, in, in the sense that the defense did nothing to counter it yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Like you know, like I, anytime I have a case where I've got DNA involved, the the primary purpose, because I my general feeling is that experts will typically X each other out in terms of the jury. You know, you're gonna have the state's experts say what they need to say in terms of the state's case of chief, and then our expert will say what they need to say and what they're paid to say in terms of not not saying that they'll lie, but you know, we're we're always looking for experts that are seeing it through our eyes. Right. So we'll put them on it and ultimately they're going to X each other out. So what we typically hire, especially somebody like, like a DNA expert, I hire them to ask them, what do I ask on cross-examination? How do I make headway on cross-examination? And you could just tell by, by the cross-examination or the lack thereof with respect to the DNA, which I thought was powerful evidence just because of the fact that it was there and it was hers and it was, it was on J.J.'s body, and it wasn't directly on, like, his pajamas. I mean, you have that that easy argument. Well, you know, he lived with her. She's got long hair. My wife's hair is, like, everywhere in my house, all over me. This was, like, on a third layer. Like, on the outside, there was a hard explanation to understand why it would have been there if she wasn't at least present when the body was being prepared the way that it was. So, you know, as, as far as that went, and overall, I, I just thought – them leaning into, to reasonable doubt completely. And you knew it from the get. I mean, the opening statement was, I was floored at how awful it was, you know, yeah. and, and I've had cases where I've had bad facts and I know that I'm having to read, like really just lean into reasonable doubt, but I just felt like it, it was so like, so unimpassioned. <laughs> it was like, a, yeah. it was like, there was nothing to it. It had no teeth. And, and when you have a narrative, like the state had and you're trying to somehow counteract that by just saying they're not going to be able to prove it because they don't have the evidence. Man, that that's a tough road to hoe. And then when you factor in, in and, and what I was rabbit holing so much on was this this concept of of the religious side of it. You know mm-hmm. that, they, that the state had to get that in in order to give the jury context of of what their theory of the case was. And their theory was there was money, sex, and power. That's what she wanted. And they use this this her and Chad use this, you know, cult and this offshoot of LDS merely as a smokescreen to 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 basically do the things that they needed to do in order to remove the impediments that they felt were in their lives. And, and, and unfortunately, that turned out to be Chad's wife and Lori's kids, you know, along with, uh, you know, her ex-husband, Charles, and, and it would have been more. You know i mean they tried to get Brandon. and like anybody that they saw as an impediment was going down you know so the way that the intersection of the first amendment and the criminal justice system was like really put on trial there had me so fascinated because you have this concept in the in the first amendment where the government cannot make laws that dictate what we can believe in terms of our religion right so they can't right. do anything obviously a religion can never justify murder, right? That is not something that, that can ever take place. You know, if you're you're a, a person that has a religious belief that, look, we have to be cannibals, well, you're going to go to prison because you can't kill and eat people no matter what your religion says. However, and this this kind of dovetails right into your question about the fact that, that in 1992, Idaho got rid of the insanity defense, all right? But what they did is they carved out this little niche and it's not an affirmative defense. Like it's really just a way for mental defect to get brought into evidence. And it's specifically to attack the mens rea portion of the statute. And I know I might be getting a little legally here, but it's, it's really, it's a fascinating concept. And basically what that says is that had they hired a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist to evaluate lori and had that doctor been able to say look this woman actually believes this stuff she actually believes that she wasn't killing a human being which is a required element of the murder statute that she thought that she was killing a vessel that she was dismembering a vessel and in order to get rid of this demon like she literally believed that like that that was the only defense that I saw that was plausible in terms of being able to get in there and argue it but what I found out from people in the courtroom that were observers is that Lori would not allow them to do that. Like they actually the her attorneys went on the record and would not allow them to use this this one little portion of the statute that carved out the the ability to be able to get that mental defect in there she wouldn't let them do it which spoke volumes to me, frankly. Yeah. About the fact that, like, I I honestly think that the woman actually believes it still. I thought, like, the entire trial, I I was sitting there thinking, I think this woman actually thinks that the end of days is coming March of 2024. I think that she's sitting there thinking that none of this matters because you're all going to be gone, and I'm going to be ushering in the 144, and that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. Like, so none of this is all for naught, and I, I just, I could not shake that feeling just because of her like lack of affect, you know? And then when you hear the call from her son, Colby, man, it rocked me to my core, you know? It's like, like as a father of four and I'm sitting there listening to this woman, like just listen to her son who's destroyed, you know, based on the fact that this woman killed his siblings and his mother that like, you know, she was a single mom for periods in the course of her five marriages, it was always her and colby you know and like like i i was with the single mom you create a bond you know you that that fight between you know a single mom trying to do what she has to do to to raise her kid and, and fighting all the the challenges that come along with that like man just to see him just so crushed like i, I was a puddle to be wow. honest with you. so yeah it was an unbelievable case man it really was it, it,
1: it really was and i uh, just to kind of give a closing thought on it as you were speaking, I wonder if part of the decision, it sounds like she was, you know, had her had her hand in the strategy uh, decision making on that trial um, more than most clients. But um, I wonder, too, if they reached, you know, because you kind of reach a, a, a fork in the road with these defenses where if you're going to say, I didn't know anything about it. I had nothing to do with it, and I wasn't part of a conspiracy. That's one thing. Or you say I did do it. I was a part of it, but I was so you know mentally incapacitated, or I had truly believed that they were evil, and therefore I'm I'm throwing myself in that, like you said, that that little carve out of the insanity defense. And those are so diametrically opposed that you can't do both at once. So I wonder if that's the strategy that her defense team went with. Well, in any case, it it didn't work. I don't think it would have worked uh, with any defense that they put on because there was a tremendous amount of evidence and a a really awful crime. But we'll continue to watch it because she has her sentencing coming up and then we'll have the the trial of Chad Daybell um, either later this year or soon next year. But in any case, a really tragic story. Let's Move now to Los Angeles, California, where in another case that may soon be reaching a verdict, the jurors on the retrial of Danny Masterson have begun deliberations, and it's it's this is another one of those situations where we we record these podcasts on Fridays, and it always seems like if a jury's out and it's a Friday, they they come back with a a, a verdict later that day, and by the time we we release the podcast, we're a little late to the show. So we'll oh, see if true. that happens That'd here.
2: We know it is trial lawyers; it happens. Like I hate when a juror like when a jury's deliberating on a friday you know especially <laughs> like if, like if they go to deliberations on friday because your yeah. fear is if it's been a, a two three four week trial that they're gonna be like man we are not doing this over a weekend you know we're, right. we're not coming back you know like we're that's done we're here for yeah. Both guys, but
1: yeah yeah well we'll see uh the actor faces three counts of rape from three different accusers with the alleged incidents taking place between 2001 and 2003 scientology in this case has played a pivotal theme with some of masterson's accusers alleging that they were intimidated by church officials from bringing their allegations to light sooner masterson's first case resulted in a mistrial in november of last year with the jury deadlocked but favoring acquittal on all counts masterson's defense has made multiple attempts to have the case dismissed and bolstered their case on the actor's behalf with the addition of defense counsel sean holly Who first came on the scene as part of the notorious oj simpson dream team meanwhile the prosecution was allowed additional tools to aid in their case this time around with the judge ruling that prosecutors could directly address allegations that the actor drugged the accusers prior to the assault notably masterson did not testify in either trial and his defense did not present any witnesses on his behalf in this retrial now Masterson's fate is in the hands of a jury. If convicted on three counts of rape, Masterson could face up to 40 years behind bars. Bob, talk to us a little bit about uh, retrials. Who do they tend to favor in their in your opinion?
2: I think they favor the state. You know, and it's the one thing that happens with a retrial, and look, both sides are getting a second bite at the apple, right? So I mean in terms of anything that you think strategically, whether you be the prosecution or the defense that you think did not go well, you know, during that initial trial, you're gonna edit it out. Like the one thing that's not going to change typically is you're not going to have additional evidence because everything that was there was there at the first trial. So typically what you're dealing with is deletions, you know, where you're, you're kind of editing out things that you felt may have swung the jury one way or another or things that may have been lacking in terms of what you needed to get to the jury in order for them to, to get over the hump. If you're the prosecution. It, and, and I think that at the end of the day, Joshua, the, the thing that we all know as attorneys is every jury is different. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you can tell the same theory, both sides can to 12 different people, two separate times and come up with completely different, verdicts and it's just because you never know what a jury's going to do ever like i i've walked allison and i have tried cases where we're like wow we crushed that like there's no way they're not coming back not guilty and then the jury comes back and they hammer hammer our client like you just you just never know i mean you can have a feeling of how you you know perform during the course of the trial and, you know, you're always trying to read the jurors. You're always trying to say, oh, that juror looked at me when they came back from the deliberation <laughs> right. room. I thought I saw a smile. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you just never know what a jury's going to do. And if the state's getting two shots at it, I always feel that that leans in the favor of the state. And, and, you know, and they have the ability to be able to, like I said, edit out things that they felt did not help them the first time around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They... They they certainly had kind of a dry run as far as knowing where the defense would attack them and being able to to preemptively address those things ahead of time. Um, but then at the same time, the defense does have the added benefit of now several different transcripts on how these people have testified and the ability to cross examine them examine them on all of that. But It does seem to be that uh, prosecutions oftentimes do secure a conviction the second time around. Especially in this case, I think you might be right because there's kind of added um, tools at their disposal. And I wanted to ask you about those that in this case, they're going to be given more leeway as far as um, specifically alleging that the victims were drugged but perhaps more significantly the judge allowed several uncharged bad acts witnesses including one alleged victim who had no ties to the church of scientology so it, it, do you think those are enough to be game changers and explain for just a quick second what those un, what what do we mean by uncharged bad acts witnesses if you could
2: yeah, I think both of those things are actually devastating. You know, in, in terms of that that concept of being able to use the prior bad acts, and that's basically you know that it's it's Rule four hundred four in the federal rules, but most most states mirror that that rule in their own state rules. Um, and it basically what it allows for is acts either charged or uncharged that happened in the past that are not being used for propensity or to assassinate the character of the defendant can be brought in to show things like a common scheme or plan. Um, you you know, and, and those are things where they're devastating for a jury to hear because they're, they're not part of this case, but they do ultimately as a defense attorney, I always felt like no matter what the judge says and no matter what the rule says that it, it ultimately ends up being a character assassination. You know, it's like, look, this guy has done this before a lot, you know, yeah. and it's like, like ultimately I know how it reads and I know what it's not supposed to do in theory, but as human beings, when you hear that type of thing and you put it in conjunction with what you're hearing about, what's being alleged in this case, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful evidence. And, yeah. you know, as far as the ability to be able to say now, you know, and get into the weeds more about how this was happening and why there was no defensive wounds, why there was nothing that, you know, like typically you would see where, where, you know, you have a forcible rape, why didn't those things exist? Which would lead a juror to doubt potentially that it actually happened the way that the, you know, that the victim is claiming, you know, now they have something to hang their hat on. They say, okay, well, now I, I have an understanding that the victim wasn't conscious. Like that's how there's no defensive wounds. There's no marks. You know what I mean? So I think both of those things are very, very powerful.
1: No, I agree. I think they're game changers. And I'll go you one step further. In California, these prior bad acts in a sex case fall under evidence code here called 1108, which does allow for the argument of propensity. So it's not your typical character witnesses here this is saying specifically and the prosecutors can make the argument that listen if you believe these other people who were not even charged in this case you can believe that he has a propensity a character about him to be the type of person to commit these crimes and therefore you can conclude that he committed the crimes that he's charged with it's hard to think of an argument that can get around that especially in a case with multiple alleged victims and now multiple prior bad acts, uh, witnesses being called Man, devastating what, stuff.
2: Gut punch. That is a yeah. gut punch. Man. Yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's a very powerful tool by the prosecution. Wow. Um, and, and almost insurmountable, but really again, we'll, we'll see the effect. It's unfortunate that we don't have a verdict today to, to share with everyone, but we will see, uh, how the jurors come out on this case and follow that. I'm, I'm guessing we will probably hear something next week finally let's turn to our last case out of moscow idaho this week it was learned that brian koberger has been indicted by a grand jury on four counts of first degree murder and one count of burglary for his alleged perpetration of the university of idaho slayings of four college students the violent killings which which left the small community of moscow idaho shocked took the lives of kaylee gonsalves madison Mogan. Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. All the victims were stabbed to death in an off-campus home near the University of Idaho, not far from the border of Washington State. Koberger, who was a graduate student in Washington State University's criminology program at the time of the alleged murders, became a person of interest in the case after his white Hyundai Elantra was reportedly seen multiple times in the vicinity of the off-campus home. A nationwide search ensued for the vehicle with police apprehending Koberger at his parents' Pennsylvania home. Following his arrest, authorities release a redacted affidavit detailing the probable cause evidence for arresting Koberger, the most damaging of which includes alleged DNA linking him between a knife sheath found at the crime scene, which police reportedly tied to Koberger using genetic genealogy. Which involved the comparing of dna recovered from the crime scene to dna obtained from the trash at the home of koberger's parents evidently tied to his father really incredible police work there a preliminary hearing for the charges was scheduled for june 26 of this year however prosecutors have opted to bypass that step by indicting koberger via grand jury brian koberger faces arraignment on may 22nd and is expected to enter a plea in the charges uh bob was this development as far as the grand jury shocking to you? And if not, why not?
2: No, not at all. I, like I have proof positive, like on my TikTok and my Twitter, I was saying months ago that I would be shocked if they didn't go to a grand jury, Yeah. you know, from the defense side of it, you know, but, but the reality is like when the case broke, I started digging into, you know, their criminal rules out there. And, and, and I was also seeing that basically they never go to a grand jury in Idaho. It's like 97% are done by preliminary hearing. So I, I knew it was kind of a rare occurrence for them to convene one. So like, that was the only thing that I was kind of contemplating and, and you know, and they have a, a part of their criminal rules out there is they have what, what's kind of called a, a preliminary hearing speedy statute where they had to come within 14 days with the preliminary hearing yeah, unless Koberger and his, his defense team waived it, which they did, which is how it got kicked out so long. You, you know the only thing that kind of surprised me is that the defense agreed to kick that preliminary hearing out so long you know because the advantage for the state is that it's done in secret that being a grand jury it's not like like a preliminary hearing that would have been a mini trial like and in, in, as us as trial observers we all wanted to see it because it, it's just one of those cases that garnered so much attention. Across the nation, really across the world, that we all want more. Like, you know, like I mean, yeah. the online community, social media, exploded with that case in a in a reckless way. In a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I like I, I was worried about what was going on, know, in, in a lot of senses, in terms of innocent people being pointed the finger at and you know being blamed, and you know, like, and people buying it and people running with it. I think there was an actual lawsuit by a professor who was some TikToker had said you know that this woman had done it. And through like the reading of tarot cards and like the professor actually sued that TikToker, it, it was reckless, like the stuff. That yeah. was so like I'm taking that into consideration of what went on with respect to the the dissemination of, of information and, and a lot of incorrect factual information. Like my podcast, we did. I did not report on that case at all until aside from the initial story, you know, that these these beautiful kids had been their lives had been robbed from them. But beyond that, I, we refused to deal with it until they made an arrest because I wasn't going to engage in the speculation. So the reason that I'm bringing that up, I, I think that that played a part in the decision to go to a grand jury. Now, we know that the gag order is in place, but we also know that the, the just the magnitude. Like, I hadn't seen media on a case like this, and we've seen some big ones, but I hadn't seen it like this since like OJ. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and OJ was pre-internet, pre-social media. And like that was the closest that I had come to seeing like anything that had just like captured captured the minds of the nation like that the like this case had so like I, I think that there's a real concern with respect of them getting any more information out to the public just because they're they're afraid of of what will happen online and through the mainstream media to be honest with you and, and beyond that you know it's an advantage to the state because they don't have to. They don't have to put on witnesses that are going to be cross-examined by the defense right. in a grand jury. It's done secretly. They, they go in and they basically, they impanel the grand jury, and they'll typically put on one, maybe two witnesses. And they're basically going to recite the PCA in that probable cause affidavit. And, you know, the jury has the opportunity, the grand jury has the opportunity to ask questions. They could even go so far as to say, we want to see additional evidence now, I've never personally seen that happen when I get a grand jury you know, transcript, but they can do it, you know. So from from that perspective, it, like, it, it was not a shock to me at all. Yeah. Like, I, I thought that that was absolutely the way that they would go. And frankly, I thought it was the way they should go based on everything that had been happening in terms of us, the public. Like if, if like, Joshua, I don't know if you've ever gone on this Facebook page that has 220,000 members about the Idaho 4 case. No. You want to talk about a rabbit hole of speculation <laughs> man like you, you will lose days of your life in there so yeah I, I was not surprised and frankly I thought it was the right move um i'm a little bit surprised that the defense didn't you know kind of like like I, I might have thought about doing a writ of habeas to get that pulled in you know because a little earlier because that's a really long time for him to yeah. be afraid you know like yeah. I mean, six months is a really long time and you know, I mean, the arraignment's going to take place Monday, and like it's not going to be news that he's going to, you know, plead not guilty to all the charges because that's, that's how they do it. Like, if people are yeah. expecting this guy to say, I did it, it's not happening. It's going to be yeah. not guilty. It almost always is, and it will be in this case. So, yeah, I, I was not at all surprised.
1: No, I wasn't either. And I think people who have a background like yourself and myself, uh, who, who, who this is the world we live in, uh, were not surprised by this at all. It, in, in Los Angeles, it's the same as you had mentioned, 99% of, of charges go through a prelim. To have a grand jury is, is rarely used, but it's used in cases with a lot of complexity, in cases with perhaps sensitivity towards the people who are going to be testifying, and in cases with a lot of media intrigue because they don't want to turn the prelim into this absolute circus of media frenzy and reporting on it and second guessing it and stuff getting out. And um, so, yeah, they, they opt for it. And I, I was not shocked that they opt for it here because I think it just made it easier on the prosecution, especially in light of we're now starting to learn that some of the at least one of the surviving uh, members of that household had been subpoenaed by the defense for the prelim and was fighting it so it sounds like they they are even having perhaps some trouble convincing some people to participate in this whole process because they might be reluctant to be in the public light or subject to uh the scrutiny of cross-examination so this was a way to avoid all of that and now it it just further puts the defense i think behind the eight ball because they don't have the opportunity to cross-examine people and kind of Confine them to a very specific narrative of what they testified to. And they are just going off of those transcripts without the benefit of seeing how these people testified in court. So it's not shocking at all. And just so that listeners understand too, this isn't somehow unfair on the part of the prosecution. It's a probable cause hearing, just like a preliminary hearing. It's just, exactly. it's a different way of doing it but, it, but it still has to be determined that there's enough evidence below, far below the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, but enough evidence to hold that person to answer for trial, which is exactly what's going to take place here. Um, one more thing that you mentioned, um, a lot of people have been critical of the defense having put the prelim over for such a long period of time that you, you're right uh, the The clock is always controlled by the defense, so they, to some extent, can put some pressure on the prosecution to get things going quickly. And sometimes there's a strategy behind let's get it let's push the prosecution i don't think they're ready i don't think they've got their ducks in a row perhaps they don't even have lab results on some things that they need and let's see if we can't get this to prelim quickly and take advantage of all of that i think the reason why they did it here and it wasn't as bothersome to me is i believe and that's the question i have for you is he's going to be looking at the death penalty i mean a case like this putting your politics aside is the poster child example of what you would use the death penalty for for this kind of innocent victims brutal killing multiple murders all of that involved um and i think the pro the defense is realizing that and i think they thought we are going to take our sweet time to make sure we mount as much of a defense as we possibly can on any part of this and if that means putting his prelim off for a period of time for us to review this data dump of information we're going to get from the prosecution let's go ahead and do that now doesn't really matter end of the day because they did it through grand jury anyways but that to me was their thinking behind it but do you do you think this will end up being a death penalty case and if it does how do you think that affects the defense's posture and the way they approach it
2: i absolutely think it's going to be a death penalty case i, I think that that this case actually was the impetus of them bringing back the firing squad in Idaho. Now, that's not the first choice. Basically, he could be put in front of a firing squad if they are not able to uh, collect the, the, the cocktail for the lethal injection, which frankly is in, in low supply. So, I mean, there, there's a chance that, I mean, they go old school and if this if he's found guilty that he's going to be standing in front of a firing squad, which is Kind of mind-blowing when you think of it um so a way to get put down but um yeah no i I agree completely joshua i think that that you know that mindset and you know and and i tried a quadruple homicide that had spanned five years there was a child victim just a devastating case and you know i was the same thing was happening with us but it, it wasn't so much the waving of the preliminary hearing because they didn't have a statute in Omaha, Nebraska, that was the, the, that 14 day like kind of trigger, you know, where if you don't get it done, you've got serious problems in terms of keeping this guy in custody, you know, but ultimately our concern was, do we want to do a speedy trial demand because which still exists for, for the Idaho four case. I mean, they waived the preliminary hearing. As far as I know, they still have the ability to be able to do a speedy demand, which they're never going to do. And it's, it's like, you're talking about, I mean, not to, mother, not to interrupt mother. you
1: but you're right at this arraignment it they'll they'll be set on another clock so if they wanted to they could say we want our trial as soon as possible but exactly. i agree with you i think they're probably going to put the trial off for some period of
2: time anyways yeah no no way they're going to go on a speedy demand you know and it's like you have that situation where because you know like a massive amount of the investigation takes place post arrest it's like like you said they did amazing police work when that when that pca dropped And I had been looking at the Delphi PCA, which, you know, was revolving around Abby and Libby over in Delphi, Indiana, which is a very big case for the true crime world. You know, we all want justice for those girls. And when that PCA dropped, I was like, ooh, I'm worried. I'm worried about the strength of the case here. And then after the defendant in the Idaho 4 cases is picked up and arrested and that PCA was released, I was like, wow. It's like you see the disparity in the power of the PCA and the police work that was done in, in just in the face of like the entire country yeah, really just spitting all over law enforcement saying that they were incompetent. I mean, you had the the parents of some of the victims attacking them and they just behind that curtain, they were able to maintain, they knew what they were doing. They knew they were closing in and to like, imagine how difficult that must've been for law enforcement to be knowing how close they were to capturing, who they believe did it and not saying anything, you know, like no, I, I, I was so impressed by the, the way that the entire I, thing. I,
1: I completely agree with you. And I'm so glad you brought that up. It, it was so, uh, uh, it put a smile on my face. And I, cool. because I imagine what those detectives were going through because they were, they were really getting, Uh, raped over the coals for what are they doing why haven't they arrested anyone why don't they have any leads maybe they're not up to task here maybe it's too small of a town to handle this they should bring in reinforcements and then they drop that affidavit and you're like wow they did some next level police work here and they'd been working on it for some period of time and the case that they handed over to the prosecution now even just based upon that initial affidavit i think is incredibly strong
2: oh man me um, too. like that thing heavy heavy leans towards guilt it's like you, you'll yeah. get a pca that, that leans towards guilt but this thing is heavy leans towards guilt and you, you know and it, like you touched upon the genealogical dna and like for those of you guys out there it's not going to matter they've already like the the defendant's already submitted his own dna they're not going to have to rely on the genealogical dna that they were able to get from, you know, his parents home, because they're going to have his DNA. So they're going to be yeah. able to make that match with his DNA. So like, you know, like the, but, but for what they needed at that point, it was brilliant police work, you know, and yeah. it was like, it was multi-jurisdictional, you know, this was, you had so many States involved. You had Washington, you had Idaho, you had Pennsylvania, you know, you had Colorado because they had driven through, you had Indiana pulling him over two times on the way, you know, I mean, there was, so much behind the scenes police work that went on with that thing that I, I was, I was really impressed like the whole way through. And, you know, it's, it's going to be one heck of a case. Yeah. And sadly, Joshua, <laughs> I think they're going to do the same thing that they did with Vallo. If if we're lucky, we're going to get to hear it. I don't think we're going to get to see
1: now, it. Right. Now, I th- it does seem to be leaning that way with the gag order that's in place. But, And it's unfortunate, too, that now that they've done it through grand jury, we don't have the same kind of transparency that we would have had at a preliminary hearing, which would have been open to the public. But I'm sure that there will be no shortage of coverage on this case, and we will continue to watch it. But that is our show for this week. Bob, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you?
2: It was an absolute pleasure. In terms of the podcast, we're on every platform, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Uh, Our i'm on all socials as well and it's all under defense diaries defense diaries is is the podcast Uh, like i said we have a serialized long form for people that like deep dives and we've also got the docket where we handle all the current and breaking news stuff and uh we think we do a pretty good job so we would love you guys check this out so i really appreciate the opportunity to be here and i had a blast doing it
1: Uh, we had a blast having you thank you and we will definitely post the links to your your show in the notes of this um podcast I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at joshuaritteresq, and please check out joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCDsidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily sidebar.